Will we start this week off as smoothly as we started off last week, Mark? Uh, yeah. This is the this Unsung is. Podcast. <laughs> yeah. This is the Unsung Podcast. I'm it's your host, Mark. It's not really in keeping the nirvana, is it? It's not enough angst. Not enough angst, yeah. So this is part two of uh, a show that I didn't necessarily think we'd ever do in this <laughs> This podcast, but we are discussing what we like the multi, 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 multi million selling rock superstars Nirvana, a band that can never ever be at any record or any song can ever be classified as unsung. Disagree. <laughs> I think any record or any song, because I am literally making the case <laughs> that uh, Incesticide is somewhat unsung. Um, and I think there are many songs, especially amongst their more obscure back catalogue, uh, that are certainly underappreciated. So, no, disagree. The band overall, okay, fair play to you. I don't think even they expected to be anywhere like as sung as they ended up being. Yeah. Clearly. Dave Grohl. <laughs> Still gone. <laughs> yeah, heard of him. Did we not kill him? Yeah. <laughs> Is he back? <laughs> Yeah, we, we made jokes about uh, we should bring back the Dave Grohl Nexus for this week's episode and try and find the most convoluted <laughs> way convoluted. to, to yeah. get from Dave Grohl to Nirvana. <laughs> like, an entire episode. <laughs> like, hi folks, this is a three-part episode this week. We've got one and two about Nirvana, and part three is just me and Mark getting to Dave Grohl <laughs> from Nirvana via 400 different connections, <laughs> at least half of which will be Nazis, and a couple will be AIDS. Um, uh, if you don't understand that joke... Go back and listen to our back catalogue, the episode when Mark killed Dave Grohl. Yeah. Or just Google Alive and Well. <laughs> that'll, that'll yeah, get, Google get Alive you. and Well, Foo Fighters. Um, yeah, N- Nate Mendel is a link that you're looking for there, folks. <laughs> make your fucking hair stand on end, that one. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we are discussing Incesticide. Before we jump back in uh, to just bring you up to speed, the first episode was trying to avoid retreading all the, you know, the tropes about Nirvana. They're very, very, very well documented band. You don't need us to be some sort of non-intelligent agent. AI just recycling <laughs> fucking factotums. Um, given more of a personal experience of the band, where they came from, please go back and listen to episode one. We also did a little bit of a, a dive uh, through their back catalogue. We are now about to go into the main albums in a bit more detail, including contributions from co-hosts and sometime contributors, uh, giving a bit of their personal insight. <laughs> We've had a couple bits and bobs uh, filtering through as we've been recording getting messages from people that I know are friends of the pod Um, I'll maybe drop those in at the appropriate times Uh, before we get into that content Mark we have to think of some admin last week we tried to put people from Glasgow or central Scotland under the microscope and rinse them for uh, four quid a month uh, as subs to the pod Dangling the carrot, of course, that we will genuinely do another live episode and the live episode will be on hair metal, which is a guaranteed hit, a guaranteed fucking hit. If we get to a certain number of subscribers I, I haven't set that number uh, I don't want to set that number <laughs> um, So I'll keep it under my hat um, But who should we point the finger at this week? I did consider the English Yeah, same because they stole, I always consider the English They, they stole a royal So the least they can do is give us four they bucks stole a royal Of all the things, for God's sake, that they can do <laughs> um, But do, do we want to target the English? Are there any other places? What about if your first language is English But you live in a non-English speaking nation yeah. and they're listening to this podcast I like that how's fucking about it or or if your first language is not English but you, you're listening to this <laughs> podcast anyway how are you getting on with that <laughs> and did you understand what he just said because I'll wager no um, yeah that's a fucking that's a high bar I can, I can honestly say like I've had to mute a lot of conversations which are requests for me to translate what did Mark just say. <laughs> Is that actually true? That's actually true. Really? Yeah, yeah, but don't, don't feel bad about it. I don't feel bad about it. I'm just amazed. I've got a phone voice, you don't. <laughs> I do, I just don't put it on for this podcast because why should I? I'm relaxed. Yeah. You, get, you get me? You just get me, mate. Like, you don't, you don't get, you don't get, well, you don't get all me. If I could talk, I could talk with much more Could slang. I even handle that? I don't think I could. I could talk with much more slang. This is just like, this is middle, middle, <laughs> middle slang. Middle slang. 
<laughs> it's a town in England. Yeah. If you live in middle slang and you're listening <laughs> to this podcast, please give us four quid uh, a, a fucking month. Yeah. Four quid. You get bonus you, episodes I, sometimes. I literally wrote 10,000 words in preparation for this fucking show and I've then got to edit it. If you just come on to fuck. Dig buy deep. the boy a pint for yeah, fuck's buy sake. Buy me a fucking pint. Or, a, like, or get me half a half a pint. <laughs> and I'll get Mark a half, I promise. Uh, by the way, uh, so my flatmate did say, uh, Oh, Chris, did you dress up for the Nirvana episode? I was like, uh, Yeah. Sick, sick burn, Rosie. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. So I'm wearing like, a blue and white checked shirt, and yes. it is from 1994. That's amazing. It was bought in the Lake District. By it was my bought parents. in the Lake District. If you're from the Lake District, <laughs> <laughs> so England give us that. Uh, no, it was bought in the Lake District by my parents, right? When they were on holiday, and I was back in Scotland, going, "I've got a fucking empty. <laughs> Everybody, come round." And I specifically remember we cleared all the furniture out my front room. We set up a drum kit. And a bunch of random shitty recording stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so I remember doing that, way an empty and having a party that night. And I think we maybe played poker and tried to pretend we were grown-ups. Um, did you listen to Nirvana? Absolutely. I mean, pretty much everything we did back then was that. So yeah, that, that's when this shirt came into my life and I've had it ever since. Yeah, so go to patreon.com for slash unsung pod and buy Chris a new shirt. <laughs> a, new, a new checked Seattle shirt for the for the how many waves of grunge are we on now? Four? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I'll, maybe at I'll least take it. at least. Yeah. Okay, into the breach. We are going to discuss the albums in a little bit more detail than we're going to get fired in about Incesticide. And the first album we're going to discuss is the album Bleach. And I think before we give our own opinions and background to that, we should check in with a certain David John Weaver. I've missed David. Can you fucking believe it? I've missed David. It's nice even hearing his voice, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Dave Weaver, when presented with the choice of which Nirvana album screams OI, he he chose Bleach. And he recorded this in the the, the foyer, the forecourt of Mono, over a a couple of shandies, I believe, Mm. prior to going to see the band Full of Hell. Um, So let's hear what Dave... Very on brand. Let's let's hear what Dave and the six or seven tables round him have to say. (laughs) All right, it's Weaver. Yeah, Nirvana. I mean, it's kind of a cliche to say that they introduced me to a lot of heavy music, but uh, I'm sitting outside sunny mono in Glasgow uh, waiting for my cousin Ian to arrive and we're going to go and see Full of Hell Antichrist Siege Machine and Jarhead Fertilizer which is going to be extremely loud and extremely heavy and I think it was my cousin Ian 26 years ago that introduced me to Nirvana I think he had Nevermind on CD I remember him playing it in my uh, in my parents' living room and just being absolutely blown away that music could be that powerful. Um, it was Smells Like Teen Spirit that just sort of, as a 10-year-old, I was like, you know, I'd listen to rock and Iron Maiden, obviously, but, uh, yeah, there was something about this that was visceral and primal. But, um, you know, so obviously I got into Nevermind as a 10, 11, 12-year-old uh, if you're into alternative music, you do that. But it was uh, Inverness Library then stocked both In Utero and Bleach and Incestus. And in fact, it had loads of old crunch stuff. Uh, and I remember, re- you know, renting the CDs for a week or two weeks or however long it was and obviously taping them. And the tape that I kept going back to actually was Bleach um, as maybe a 13, 14 year old. And to be honest, it's maybe the record that I go back to now as well. I don't know, there's something just beautifully sludgy, primal about it. And yet there's, the hooks are still there. Like, Kurt's vocal hooks and, and melodies are really stand out. And like I remember listening to Soundgarden and Dinosaur Jr. Yeah, you know, when I was trying to educate myself on all this music. But it was, uh, the bleach stood out to me because it was just so fuzzy and heavy and yet those were the the melodies that I really enjoyed and yeah it's still a still an absolutely great record 
uh, and you can see like go go watch some really extreme hardcore metal tonight but you can see the lineage all the way from Bleach to what these bands are doing now um, so yeah for me it's Bleach is the one that I think is their unsung record at least uh, to be honest sounds like sacrilege sitting outside mono I better say this quietly but I'm not a big fan of the covers by Glasgow band of Glasgow bands that they do uh, yeah so that's that's my Nirvana patter Bleach is not necessarily their best but I would say it's my favourite so Mark by virtue of the fact that we do actually speak to each other when we're not recording <laughs> I am aware of a certain take that you may have in this album okay so I'm going to get some of the preamble out the road <laughs> and then I'm going to take your leash off and just let you run about in the field I'm not going to go mad mauling children don't worry, don't worry about it <laughs> right um, so I might but, sound like a dog when I talk <laughs> <laughs> thanks Dave Weaver man good to hear from you um, I actually agree with a lot of what he said I mean it's it's a gateway drug to a lot of heavier music this, this record I think the vocal hooks on Bleach are definitely there We'll talk about that in a bit more detail I'm sure It's unrefined enough to have a bit of longevity I do think sometimes when something is too slickly produced It can get quite stale quite fast And there's a coarseness to Bleach By virtue of the fucking $600 budget that it was produced on That gives it a roughage There's, it, it, It's impossible to be too saccharine It's impossible to be too sickly Um it's very, very imperfect, but I think that also lends it a bit more staying power. Um, also, I, I want to flag this up, and I'm very proud that Dave sought to be so honest, especially in the dangerous confines of Mono, <laughs> but I don't particularly like Nirvana's treatment of the other Glasgow bands, uh, one in particular, which we'll maybe talk about in a bit more detail <laughs> later on. Um, so good on you, man, for taking that chance. We Bleach itself, uh, just to get us out the road, Really, as he said, he used the word sludgy. It's a sludgy album that I think has gone a long way, whatever you think of the songs, to cementing Nirvana's credibility as a band, to showing they had this really earthy origin. You know, this was not a band that arrived fully formed. They have this backstory, they have this legacy, and it's very transparently genuine. And it's full of like inconsistencies as well, obviously, going through the tracks, which we won't do, but picking out the obvious one about a girl. Putting that on an album where like some like paper cuts and Floyd the Barber and um, Swap Meet and stuff like that. It's a very, very odd and erratic mix and mm-hmm. it's sort of more in keeping with the likes uh, with the lights out. It feels quite authentic. Um they were kindred spirits with bands like Tad and the Melvins at this point, again talking about grunge. That is a different school of grunge. That is not yeah. the Pearl Jam Stone Temple Pilots school of grunge. That is like a punk record played at fucking 33 when it yeah. should be played at 45. It feels very Melvin City, you know. They're not a preening bump conversion of LA hair metal, which, let's be honest, a lot of the Seattle bands kind of were trying to be sort of LA rock stars, but in a kind of like naive, slightly laughable way sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, for folks who I think are turned off by Nevermind Sheen and the success even, uh, and for people that find the neuro a bit pretentious, you've got tracks like Negative Creep, and they've done a lot to keep Nirvana on people's good side. I mean, fucking Machine Head covered Negative Creep quite famously. Corey Taylor and Slipknot said this album was one of their main influences when they were starting Mm. as musicians. Um, the tunes that really kind of I think were worth mentioning that haven't already been mentioned in well they have been mentioned in this context but I do want to draw attention to them Blue 
the opening tune has been referred to as the sole survivor of Nirvana's doom pop experiment. In the early days when they were really, again, you can hear it on with the lights out, they're fishing about trying to find who the fuck are we. We like all these different things. We like ABBA. We like Black Flag. We like Melvins. What do we want to be? And Blue has a weird mix and it seems like it works quite well. It was Cobain's favourite of of the the tracks in that record, mainly because it managed to get a real groove. Um, The album was originally released without Downer. It appeared in the CD version and I think the UK version actually featured the track Big Cheese instead of Love Buzz mm-hmm. because Love Buzz had come out as a single prompting the band to then add Love Buzz onto the Blue EP later that year so it got a proper UK release uh, Love Buzz itself is pretty iconic in a weird way um, obviously from an original track by Shock and Blue Believe me when I tell you Um, it made Sounds Single of the Week as voted for by John Robb of all people mm-hmm. um, and was the band's first of many mentions in the UK press uh, with a cascade of interest following on the back of it it's crazy to think that, that that was Nirvana's first time in any UK publication was John Robb talking about Love Buzz Everett True also made that uh, joint single of the week soon after for Melody Maker and Everett True is the guy, he's the same writer that went on to be the one who broke the Seattle movement in Melody Maker he he took a trip over there, it became like a really iconic thing and a bit like you know people like Jimi Hendrix, that scene broke in the UK first America hadn't picked up on it and they went back to it, if you want to know a little bit more about that phase, go and listen to our Grunge Live tape, it has has a lot of information on that Uh, so at this point Yes, Mark. What are your thoughts on Bleach? Because I would definitely accept it's a very naive and flawed and rudimentary record, but I'm a bit like Dave. Like I think it's it's aged incredibly well, and I can still really enjoy listening to it, mainly because it's not easy to enjoy in a weird way. It takes work. Yeah, um, it's just this version of Nirvana don't get very far. You know what I mean? Uh, if they continue to be like this, they would they wouldn't have been. They would, music would be very different. Um, this version of Nirvana did nothing for me I find the record quite boring it doesn't mm. have the hooks which I look for in Nirvana one thing I actually didn't mention in my story of Nirvana is like my uncle actually gave me this record when he knew I was in Nirvana mm-hmm. he had it lying around and he didn't like it I mean if you bought this off the back of Nevermind I can understand mm-hmm. that for a lot yeah. of mainstream yeah. audiences mm-hmm. I think he would have probably got it around about the time and um, it came out I don't know why he had it to be honest because um, he was kind of more into dance music so it was a bit bizarre um, but yeah, about a girl and and love buzz are two really good songs. I think everything else, I just it just becomes quite formless to me. You know, there's some good riffs on it as well, but I mean, it's yeah, hard I mean, to tell the difference between songs a lot of the time. I, I think. have to, I have to say, man, I think Floyd the Barber, Negative Creep, and Mister Mustache in particular, the riffs. Negative Creep is good. That's the, a good song. I mean, those riffs are fucking excellent. I think, you know, denser stuff like paper cuts and swap meat, a big cheese. Yeah, it's a bit dank. I do like it. But as I say, that's the stuff that's taken a lot more work over the years. But it does it does pop into the head. I mean school. School's a fucking School is a good song. Belter, yeah, it's a really you know, good song. And I, I do I do think um Blue is a really interesting one in, in their back catalogue. Mm-hmm. So the twentieth anniversary edition of it's quite interesting because it's got the bonus tracks are basically everything that was recorded in this era, so Dive. Yeah. Um, there's a version of Spank Through on it, there's a version of Sappy on it, mm-hmm. um, Being a Son, which is which, probably... It's weird, because you can't imagine Sappy going on a record with the stuff that's on this, but then again, we're also used to about a girl being on here, mm-hmm. that actually, is it any different? Probably not. Yeah, like I said, um, Curtis said in an interview, he actually 
was suppressing his desire to write popular, accessible songs. Songs like Sappy, which is a bit more accessible than some of the stuff in this record. Very much so. Being a Son, which is essentially like a it's like a punkier verse of a Beatles song to me. Yeah. You know, um, they all fit it and scoot. They all fit it, in with it's, the, it's with, like, with like early Beatles as well. Yeah, it's uh-huh, like drive it my car, fucking Beatles. Totally, hundred yeah. percent, man. All apologies is of, is of the same thing as well. And I find that to be quite interesting that they were written and like the the bonus tracks were like a live performance. So that in nineteen ninety, so these songs were obviously in the ether and kicking about and 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 yeah. Kurt's and the band's repertoire and Kurt's head maybe not as refined as they would later go on to be in some versions. So yeah, that impulse was always there. You know, um, it feels as though to me that he was not. I say he, but mostly he. To be honest, like he was probably trying to get some cultural cachet with like his pals and say, "I can do this." Yeah, I think he was constrained by the circles they moved in. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially Melvin's, because they really idolised Melvin's. And and by the way, I don't think that Melvin's would have been too sniffy about them playing some tunes. They like Kiss Man, do you know yeah, what I mean? absolutely. Like, but I think you're a young guy. You want to impress these people, so you put out a beastin', chunky, dirty, heavy record. Also, you've been in a band with Dale Crover, and you've done a project with Buzz yeah. you know so like they're your pals and I guess it's also part of that I like well, I don't want to let them down and because I know I can do this shit but also I know I can do this shit yeah. maybe I'll try and do the and it is that stuff, point you know? where you don't necessarily yet have that strength of character to really see it through I mean if Nirvana had formed and, and came about as a band which had little bits of what was happening in Bleach and songs like Being a Son and all that on more on this record maybe the scene would have been more receptive to the idea that they could do both yeah, you know it's interesting to think like Tad sat and watched them record Sliver. Literally sat and watched them record that track. They must have been a lot less surprised than everybody else when suddenly Nirvana became this enormous pop rock band mm-hmm. because yeah. they saw it. They were like, "Fuck, man! They've been doing these songs for ages. They've got this in them." And it's interesting to think of that. Yeah, and you're right. They probably were suppressing it, being a bit self conscious. They were young. They were like nineteen, twenty years old. Mm. Yeah, at yeah. le- at least to Nevermind, right? It does lead to Nevermind, and and and. That's the paradox. You've said that Kurt was kind of contradictory guy and in a lot of his journals he talks about idolising the big bands. He clearly likes Zeppelin, you know, clearly likes Aerosmith, you know, Beatles and all that. Likes he says that Aerosmith music. was the best big concert they ever went yeah, to. Yeah, he likes all that kind of stuff and that's completely at war with the, the DIY culture and the, and the sludgy kind of grungy movement and the DC hardcore and he wanted to be both. He did. Clearly wanted to be both. He didn't. He, he honestly, it's not even that he wanted to, he didn't know what he wanted to be. I yeah. think that's it. And mm. so you make decisions like we're going to record this record with Butch Vig, and we're going to do it uh, on Geffen. We're going to sign a major label, right? We're going to do that, and then we're gonna. Um, oh, I don't want to like I don't want to overdo it though. And then Butch Vig, Butch Vig is like, well, you know, John Lennon used to double track his vocals, or so John Lennon used to do it. Well, I guess I'll do that. I guess he's also quite easily led, probably in in some ways. And that, that Beach Butch Beach Beach Butch Batch Back Butch <laughs> Bitch Vig Bitch Mister. The guy, the guy is in garbage. <laughs> um, he obviously seen what was there and was able to wrangle that and, and make it into the most maximal version of what it would. Yeah, although well, as you, you said yourself, like his mix of the album is not entirely polished, mm-hmm. but we'll talk about that in a second. So, and then the contradiction comes in and it's like, oh well, that's too much. We need to go back now. I like Steve Albini and I like the I like the angular Jesus of the vibes. Why don't we do that? And he's, try a con- and, he's a contrarian, yeah, totally, absolutely. But he's a young. But I think the thing that you did hit upon something I think which is right is like he died when he was twenty six. He was still not twenty seven. Twenty seven. Well, mm. he's still trying to figure out who he is as a person and as a musician. Fame came so quickly that that yeah. com- that compresses everything. I mean, know, I, we will touch like, on this in my in my when we're winding up, man. But I actually think his emotional growth was pretty stunted, and I think it does show yeah. in some of, some of the decisions musically and creatively and professionally. They're not contemporaries, but think about other bands that got really big really quickly: Guns N' Roses, Metallica. They're, they're still not really complete human beings, you know. You, yeah. you watch some kind of monster, they're just kids, you yeah. know. That was 20 years ago, 20 years ago now, but I can't imagine they've come on all that much because they don't have to. They're in their bubble. Mm-hmm. You know, and Kurt was in a bubble. And he, uh, the thing about Kurt, though, is like he knew that too. He knew he was in a bubble, mm-hmm. but he was too powerless to actually make any positive change, I think. We'll talk about that a little bit more, I guess. But So you spoke about uh, Butch, Bitch, Batch, Butch. Um, Never mind. Never mind. A little uh, spoken about record (laughs) (laughs) from the early 90s. Quite unknown. 
Nevermind debuted at number 144 on Billboard 200 and only sold uh, 6,000 copies in its first week. In January 1992, though, it went from number 6 to number 1 and knocked Dangerous by Michael Jackson (laughs) off the top spot for two weeks. You love it. Nevermind is a big album. That is one of the biggest albums. (laughs) I don't really have a lot to say about the album itself. However... Vicky has a bit to say about the album itself because Vicky chose Nevermind. So let's see what she's thinking. Hi, everybody. It's Vicky here to talk about Nirvana. I can't say I think a lot about Nirvana these days. Certainly a band that I enjoyed growing up. I spent a lot of time hanging about in utero and never mind until I was quite a bit older, possibly in my 20s, before I decided to listen to anything else by them. But that's probably just because I find familiarity comforting, which you can probably tell by my taste in music. Instinctively, I want to say that In Utero is my favourite. That's always been my answer. But now, on reflection, I'm not sure that's so true. There are absolute bangers on it. I still love things like Scentless Apprentice. That's probably one of my favourite tunes, for sure. But on In Utero, you also have some tracks that I think could possibly be Nirvana's worst material. Things like All Apologies, Heart-Shaped Box... Penny Royalty, if I never hear that again, it will be too soon. I can't stand the whiny stuff. I prefer the heavier stuff. And really, if you're thinking about albums start to finish, consistency, impact, success, probably their best album is Nevermind. And certainly my favourite song is Drain You, that's on Nevermind. I certainly remember being very young, seeing Nirvana on MTV playing Lithium and being kind of captivated by Kurt Cobain. But probably everybody who ever was a Nirvana fan when they were younger will have been uh, captivated by that whole rock and roll mythology. So I'm happy to say that I've left those days far behind me. I still really appreciate Nirvana because I think that they revived popular guitar music, they united people from across many different subcultures. You could be into Nirvana and be a punk, metal people were into Nirvana, people that were into indie liked Nirvana, people that liked pop music were into Nirvana, people that liked rap music were into Nirvana, just everybody kind of bought into it and I think that is a bit of an achievement, you can't really underestimate it just because it's so ubiquitous and you get tired of it. I did try to listen to Nevermind fairly recently and I couldn't really go through with it, it's just too much. Like I drank a bottle of Southern Comfort when I was 18 and I've never been able to drink it again. I really liked it at the time, but I've had my fill. Um, I sometimes wonder what would have happened if Kurt Cobain never died and what kind of band Nirvana would become and what kind of world it would have been if we didn't have to put up with the Foo Fighters. I can dream. Anyway, yep, that's my thoughts about Nirvana. Um, Haven't really elevated this conversation about Nirvana, have I? Apologies, it's been a long day. Thanks, guys. Bye. Of course you elevated it, Vicky. Of course you did. Um, Actually, I want to pick up on a couple of things. The first being uh, the sentence that came out of her actual mouth that said, I spent a lot of time hanging about in utero. (laughs) Which is just (laughs) like, come on, mate. Just be born. Um, So uh, That's such a dad joke, isn't it? It is. I love it. Well, you know. I love it. We'll discuss in utero, but I kind of agree with a lot of what she says. I can tell that's going to be a bone of contention between us, Mark. I think so. Um, Drain You being her favourite song, I think that's a decent shout. That's probably one of my Favorite top I'm five, on top record five. as saying Lounge Act is the Lounge song. Act is a, I mean, I'm not going to say that song's a bar because they're all bangers on this record. It just is. Lounge Act is the song I think I want played at my funeral. And I think part of that comes from the ending of Life Tonight Sold Out when that weird trippy thing finishes Kurt's dead and the band have tried to complete the movie the screen goes black and it does that mm-hmm. thing and then it starts it's incredible I, I absolutely love that song it's a, it's a masterclass in terms of you know being captivated by Kurt Cobain and the whole you know reluctant rock star mythos thing 
I think there's also a boy-girl crush aspect to it. I think, you know, you're young, you're a teenager, you're looking at that guy. He was he was an attractive guy and you're trying to sort of wrestle with your own sexuality. The band are telling you that they're very pro-LGBT and you're just sort of like, oh, what, what are these feelings I have? You know, that's, that's quite an interesting dynamic for a lot of people. As I said in the first episode, I think Nirvana played a massive role in the acceptance of the LGBT community and the alternative rock scene and it probably has a massive part to play in how persons on that scene feel about this band and we'll talk about that when we talk about Incesticide and the sleeve notes in particular Um, they revive popular guitar music I think that's kind of fairly true I mean, they didn't do it single-handedly, but there's there's a lot to that. I think bands like R.E.M. had a big part in that as well, even though it's probably not the R.E.M. that a lot of people think of. But I think my favourite point that Vicky made in that was about how they had this cross-genre appeal. Um, if you watch, again, Live Tonight sold out, near the start of that, there's a series of very short interviews with people like Beastie Boys and Kerry King, I think it is, and the guys from Pantera, and they're all like, fucking love this band, fucking love it. And it's all these people from different genres. And I think there is a lot of truth to that I mean is it Post Malone did a full fucking tour Of like Nirvana stuff And there's there's a lot of like Cross genre, cross border appeal With this group The credibility but also just the songwriting The approach, the punk ethic Behind it There was something just visceral and exciting About this band that seemed to appeal to people That probably usually would have been Tuned right the fuck out I don't see them spending a lot of time with Pearl Jam mm-hmm. Put it that way Yeah totally I mean that's totally fair um, I mean I think Vicky is Well she's right This record is untouchable I think a lot For a lot of the fans And in the first episode That Vice article said If you sit in a room With Nirvana fans And ask them what the best record is Then that's when the arguments begin Yeah There will be people That say that this record Is overproduced I think Kurt certainly Had feelings Towards yeah, that Yeah but whether, the, whether or not they're genuine Exactly it It's another one seen. of those Contrarian moments Where oh. you're like He thought they were overproduced But also he was Quite happy with how it was produced. Yeah, it? clearly, clearly was because he put a lot of time and effort, and his arm was twisted, I guess, in some ways. But that makes the record that makes the record better. But there are people out there that do genuinely hold that opinion that never mind is a bit overproduced. Because if you compare it to the other records on either side, it totally is overproduced. That's ah, a fucking square way, yeah, isn't it? Totally, man. Yeah. Um, um, you know, we were at, as I said, we were getting messages from listeners and friends of the pod and stuff. Siobhan Wilson had been in touch talking about that like supreme pop production approach mm-hmm. to this. Also, interestingly, she. Yvonne picked up on some of the lyrics as being uh, hilarious, mentioning it's okay to eat fish because they don't have any feelings. Yeah. It was something in the way. I think there's, there's a. Kurt Cobain said that it, like, lyrics were not something that he's particularly, he was ever particularly attached to. I don't know if it was an interview for this album or if it was for Bleach, but he said a lot of the time he found himself writing lyrics as, as he was in the car heading towards the studio. You can hear for the demos, but the hooks are most, or they're all actually there, but the lyrics of those hooks are often quite different. Like a demo of uh, Teen Spirit, for example, it has very different lyrics in many places, you know. I mean, yeah, I mean, the lyrics are quite playful. I mean, mm-hmm. like Siobhan highlighted, it was it's sell your kids for food and nature as a whore. And those are decontextualised Quite sardonic Yeah But also Some of the stuff Is quite insightful Being a son Generally is a song mm. You know About a girl as well so about, It was about his girlfriend At the time but Tracy Miranda Yeah but be, being a son Is about gender norms We'll talk about that In Incesticide But that's a great message To be sending In the 90s the Early 90s You know So he clearly had Some thoughts in his head About how he wanted, what The message that he wanted To send That Part of the mythos is probably him saying I'm not hugely attached to lyrics And you could say that about some of them Like the hook for Teen Spirit is mostly nonsense Yeah, I mean his journals are full of that stuff as well mm-hmm. I mean I'm not a huge fan of the whole concept of his journals I felt it was a bit invasive But what I have read You can see that they're, they're little throwaway lines Written on scraps of paper Little couplets that are just funny quite often and he drops them into these quite serious songs and they acquire a bit of gravitas but actually just spoken you're like that's quite light-hearted it's just playful you know even the name like we'll talk about incesticide where the name came from mm-hmm. but even things like that it's quite playful mm-hmm. you know um this album though i think i don't think it's their best record but i understand that it is an amazing record mm-hmm. and it comes back to what dave said at the very end of his thing about bleach is it it's like is, is basically the whole thing of it right it's it's maybe not their best record, but it's my favourite record. I think it's one of the best records ever made. Yeah, I, and I, I, I think it think, is. I think that's hard to argue. By a sort of objective criteria of, of some sort, that's not really a, a thing, doesn't exist, but it is their best, inverted commas, record. It's not 
the one I would now go and spend time with but at the same time it had such a profound impact on me like that reaction that I described of sitting like my jaw just hanging open like what like literally literally I'm not not being hyperbolic hyperbolic in that I'd like I, I don't really know many records that have ever had that effect probably none actually to that extent yeah and so that is a mighty fucking thing and yeah. yes once you're inured to it you take it for granted I thought it was really interesting just thinking about it again like Vicky's saying that you know I can't even listen to this album start to finish and you know what probably neither can I I can't bear to listen to Lithium that song like the chorus seems so redundant now yet it's something that I absolutely fucking loved for so long Smells Like Teen Spirit at 5 minutes 20 seconds is like ridiculous 4 minutes 20 seconds more than I can deal with now and how crazy is it though that these songs that were life changing are now just almost unbearably tedious and over familiar? That's a really interesting thing to be so numbed to something that you actually both appreciate it as a work of absolute fucking brilliance and do not want to be fucking near it. Yeah. That is really fascinating to me. I can still remember that feeling when I heard Teen Spirit in that, in that school hall with two, two idiots like miming it on stage and. Uh, yeah, that is that is such a raw feeling, and <laughs> you're still near the bottom of the league tables by any chance. Brilliant, <laughs> it's brilliant. You know, and I don't remember, like you just said, I don't really remember having that feeling very often in music. No, you know, you know, I, I can honestly say the song that makes me most interested to go and listen to it for Nevermind is probably Endless Nameless, yeah. the secret track. By virtue of the fact that it's the one that I've probably spent the least time listening to, mm-hmm. and it's still the freshest, and mm-hmm. it's interesting, even though it's a big fucking dirge, mm-hmm. uh, that's, a, that's a fascinating thing. I also think it's worth mentioning what an interesting inclusion that is on a breakthrough mainstream album. They didn't know it was going to be a breakthrough mainstream album, but the fact that it's there is so fucking fascinating from a Trojan horse aspect. They got that into houses that there is no way on earth those people would have listened to that song if it wasn't tacked on the back of Smells Like Teen Spirit yeah. and Come As You Are. And that's, that's mm-hmm. pretty cool. Apparently, uh, Kurt went through the guy, the, the person responsible for pressing the CDs because it wasn't included in the first press pass of the CDs. So people were, people were actually going in and exchanging their CDs wow. for the version without the song when they had the second pressing because they knew it was going to be quite rare and, and, and harder to come by in future. Um, but yeah, he actually, like, he had some very choice words. He was like, why is this not on the record? This should, where's the last song? It should be on the record. Put it on the record. Make sure it's on the record. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, in terms of other pressings, in fact, Super Deluxe Edition that we spoke about earlier on features the Smart Sessions, which were... The Butch Vig set or the, the, the Butch Vig Butch Vig sessions for what would have been sub pop album number two. They didn't come to pass because Nirvana got picked up by Geffen. And, you know, you can really hear on those smart sessions on that uh, Super Deluxe Edition the big step up. And the reason that the folks at Geffen thought this band definitely has the potential mm-hmm. to do something. And let's not forget. It was primarily Nirvana, not not only Nirvana, because, you know, Smashing Pumpkins, Pixies and stuff were doing things, but primarily Nirvana that led to that huge feeding frenzy. You know, we've covered so many bands from that feeding frenzy mm-hmm. as a result. Jawbox and Helmet, you know, you name it. Like, this band and this album largely led to that entire phenomenon. Another thing on that deluxe edition is the, the Butch Vig or the Butch Vig mix, uh, known as the Devonshire mix on the reissue. Uh, and it's long kind of been held up as Kurt's preferred version of the album. But it's interesting to see that uh, Butch himself thinks it's a bit of a mess. He said that Kurt repeatedly would come into the booth and ask for the mix to be darkened, to be more Black Sabbathy, <laughs> roll the treble off, and Vig found that really counterproductive. I am not sure if it's simply because this version of it now sounds fresh and less familiar, but I really liked hearing it. It was really interesting to hear it. It sounded really full at points. That said, the big singles do not click as much. They are not as slick. Uh, come as you are is pretty weedy. Reed has a fucking mental bass tone in the left speaker. I don't know if you've listened to this Vig mix of it, but a Vig mix of it. It's farty. It's almost like a synth, actually. Mm-hmm. 
Um, some of the album tracks though are far better. Territorial Pistons is quite different. The drums are really buried in it, and it has this really succinct ending. And um, Steve Albini, of all people, passed quite a lot of comment on that version of Nevermind. Uh, he, he said, uh, while we were working on In Utero, the band would occasionally play other recordings of theirs in the control room for reference, or when trying to describe a part to one another. They had a cassette of the rough, brackets, butch mix of Nevermind, and it sounded maybe 200 times more ass-kicking than what I remembered of the released versions. I mean, ultimately, I don't agree with Albini, but I, I can sort of sympathise with the fact that it there is something really edgy and very unrefined about it. And certain tracks, do they benefit? They maybe almost benefit. They definitely sound just as good. Other tracks, mostly the big tracks, don't sound mm. as good. Yeah. Um, last bit of trivia on this, by the way, that it doesn't get nearly enough coverage is that Soulfly used to do a live version of Territorial Pistons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To the marsh pit, Territorial Pistons. Just to illustrate the crossover potential of this band. There's a really cracking comeback kids version of Territorial Pistons, which is... We've actually played that yeah, in a previous show. It's very, very good. Yeah. So this leads to In Utero, the final studio album the by Nirvana. Uh, and on that subject, we're going to defer to our very good friend Fritz of Fat Goth and all manner of other musical projects. Concept Car, check out his new act, Concept Car. They're very, very good. Pretty good. Very yeah. good. Mm-hmm. Let's see what he's got to say. Hi guys, Fraser here. Just want to say thank you very much for asking me to be involved in this episode. Nirvana was an incredibly important part of my musical education and they were arguably the main catalyst for me wanting to make music myself. So it's nice to be afforded the opportunity to offer up my thoughts and opinions on them. For me, my favourite Nirvana album has to be In Utero. I think it encapsulates everything that was great about the band and captures all the great aspects of the previous albums. I think it really represents the the scuzzy, raw punkiness of their earlier records like Bleach and all the incesticide stuff. It's also got the real strong melodic sensibilities of Nevermind. But I think it really captures the live essence of the band as well. And a lot of that can be attributed to Steve Albini and his approach to recording. I think the album's got a lot of great sonic textures to it as well. From what I've read about the recording of the album, I I believe Kurt tracked a lot of his guitars through a Fender amplifier that was kind of half working. Um, I think it maybe had some problems with its circuitry or some of the tubes, the valves in it weren't working properly, so you kind of got that unique, real kind of broken down guitar sound. I also love the raw aspect of the vocal takes as well. I think that unpolished, unproduced approach means the vocals have a lot more emotional weight to them. Yeah, I think it's some of the the best singing Kurt did throughout their back catalogue. He sounds really mournful, really introspective at certain points and then in others he just sounds like a demented lunatic. You know, I'm thinking about the the chorus and the likes of Scentless Apprentice, you know, that scream's just uh, pretty intense. And obviously there's the drum sound as well. Um, Steve Albini is known for capturing a really good live drum sound on the records he works on. And I think In Utero might be his best, um, or at least the best I've heard, because I've not heard every album he's worked on. There's, I think by this point, there's probably thousands. But um, yeah, I think In Utero is a, a particularly great example of uh, what he's 
capable of doing as far as recording drums is concerned and I, I never get tired of hearing Dave bash away on in Euro. It, it just sounds incredible. I think the album artwork is also worth mentioning. I remember hearing Nevermind way back in the day for the first time and getting it on CD and just staring at the sleeve and staring at all the artwork and I remember thinking that deep blue watery theme really suited the vibe of the music and I think the artwork for Inutero achieves the same thing. It's quite chaotic but also beautiful as well and also kind of gross. You know, you look at the angel mannequin thing on the front cover and you can see all the, the guts and everything inside. And it, it looks kind of horrible, but at the same time, the overall image is, is quite serene and beautiful. And those contrasts and contradictions in the artwork really suit the general nature of the music within as well. I think it's a really strong artistic statement and it still stands up to this day. I don't really listen to Nirvana's music anymore. I think as a creative source of inspiration, I exhausted that stuff decades ago, but I still really love it for what it means to me. Nirvana were a gateway drug, if you like, and introduced me to a whole world of other bands and artists whose music has really influenced me over the years. So uh, they're very dear to my heart in that regard. Yeah, and Neutral gets two thumbs up from me. Yeah, um, Fritz makes some really interesting points in there. I think it kind of goes without saying that Neutral captures a mixture of the kind of punk scuzz uh, on one hand, along with the pop nouse uh, of Nevermind yeah. on, on the other hand. Captures a contradiction of Kirk Cobain quite succinctly, I think. It does, but as, as Fritz pointed out, it really also captures how good a live band they were because that's Steve Albini's whole MO now Fritz didn't mention actually his own band Alamos recorded their second album with Steve Albini and I don't know what role this album played in convincing them to pursue that but certainly he's saying that he thinks this is probably the best drum sound that Albini ever got I'd imagine that was a big part of it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they were a kind of power trio as well yeah I mean I, I think Nirvana weren't always a great live band partly because of Kurt and his own demons and, you know, the condition he would turn up in, but when they were on it, as, you know, Reading 92, mm. for example, illustrates, they were fucking phenomenal. Um, he made the point about the vocals. Yeah, I think the fact that the vocals are quite raw on this really does uh, showcase the cathartic nature of what Kurt was doing. Um, he does sound manic at points. Uh, that said, I mean, I do think he's got some pretty ferocious takes elsewhere. Even even on some of the rarities. I mean, he made that point earlier mm-hmm. on. The, the the track "If You Must" uh, is a fucking mental like vocal performance. It really is. One thing that really struck me from from what he, he contributed here was the artwork, and I'd never really considered that. But he's right. He, the words he used: gross, chaotic, serene, beautiful. They all help all that, yeah. capture mm-hmm. the contradictions inherent in Nirvana, inherent in Kurt Cobain, inherent in his songwriting and his personality. And then, yeah, finally, as, as he points out, he has, as he put it, exhausted them as a source of inspiration. And I think that's very true. Looking back at my own songwriting, which is probably not of much interest to most people, but I just mean as a metric, yeah, by about 1999 to the early 2000s, I'd kind of rinsed them. I was then playing stuff that I was like, you know, oh, this is a few years old and I was starting to rip off different bands like Fugazi or Queens of the Stone Age. But um, yeah, I, I think there is a point where you've gotten the most that you're going to get from what Nirvana are doing, whatever that is, whether it's the melodic stuff, the Beelzy stuff, the ble- you know, the bleachy, sludgy stuff, whatever it is that you're particularly hearing, there is a moment where you sort of hit your limit. And you kind of leave them behind. And maybe that's also the moment that you stop really wanting to listen to them as much. I don't know. Mm. But yeah, I think he's kind of nailed it there. I still have hold them in great affection. But yeah, as a creative source, not at all. Not for two decades, at least. At least. Mm. Yeah, I agree with his point. So uh, this is my favourite Nirvana record. It's not the best one, probably, but it is, probably, it is definitely my favourite. Um I think that even the songs that you don't like, Chris, and that Vicky doesn't like, the the the, the more sin- <laughs> you don't know what they are yet. I mean, you know what she doesn't yeah. like. The more sincere moments, I suppose, uh, uh, maybe maybe the, the the bone of contention here. 
Um, I like that he leans more into the Lennon and the, and the Beatles vibes. Yeah, the, that's probably the direction Nirvana would have explored a little bit more. Because well, everybody says that. Everybody says they were going REM meets the Beatles, but I'm yeah. not convinced. MTV of that. Unplugged shows that they had certain designs in that direction to a degree because those think- songs were re- those songs were not just acoustic versions. A lot of them were reworked, you know. Um, and I think. But it comes back to the, the, the contradiction of, of Kurt Cobain as a songwriter and that is also reflected in the production process for this record. Yeah, too. so I'm glad you, you said know. that because this album is the perfect case study of those contradictions in action. Mm. And so I do think there certainly would have been a whole vast amount of Nirvana stuff that would have been in that vein, I think. Being a son, for example, I've just said it way back in Bleach, he couldn't stop himself from writing that mm. kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Whether or not it would have made up the large part of what he'd done remains to be seen. Um, I can't imagine he'd be screaming for a lot longer because I don't know if his voice could have taken it, um, which may necessitate certain changes in how he played. But... Um, yeah, when they're ferocious on this record, they're f- they're never they've never been more ferocious. Yeah, right. When they're melodic, they've never been more melodic. I, I mean, everyone's always got there's always a the cliche when bands go, "Oh, our new record is heavier, but it's more melodic." You know, it's it's like more challenging, but it's also more catchy. This this record is that. I don't think Huckabee was walking about saying that at the time, but it is it is all of those this things. Is, this is going to seem like a really spurious fucking comparison, yeah. right? But um. All apologies at the end of this And it's weird, melancholy, buoyant optimism Really reminds me of the track Plenty For All From the end of Audit and Progress by Hot Snakes <laughs> And that suddenly there's this major key Very upbeat thing that I mm. didn't expect to encounter At the end of the record Um, regarding Vicky's The song she criticised And what, where I agree with her The lows in this album for me are Rape Me Which I think is one dimensional And a bit juvenile Rape me Rape me again Heartshape Box Which only in retrospect, just because it's overplayed and it's worn out. And I think it's such a simple song that it doesn't last. You know, it's a bit like Smells Like Teen Spirit. Once you've got to grips with that basic structure of it, it's kind of rinsed. Um, I disagree. I think it's every bit as good as Teen Spirit as a single. You know, I oh think. no, I'm not saying it. I don't. I'm not saying it's an inferior tune. I'm just saying a bit like Teen Spirit. Once I've heard what it's got to say, it doesn't have the complexity. So, for example, Serve the Servants mm-hmm. by contrast has massive repeated listenability to yeah. me. That song has an added complexity to it A nuance, a minor to major Like that song is every bit as enjoyable as it ever was for me Quite a fucked up pop song that Yeah exactly and I don't think Hurt Your Box has that Um, Dumb I think is just okay I think it's got a lovely middle eight But I think it's just an okay song And Penny Realty I totally agree with Vicky I think it's shit (laughs) I think it is whiny Fucking miserablest shit And I think also that entire controversy uh, Scott Litt and the remix And rejecting the Albini version And sort of being a little bit disingenuous You know, Kurt saying Oh, we want to make this a punk record But actually, oh no, maybe this could be a big hit single We maybe are going to Well, Scott Litt only He only, he only, he only did the, 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 the I guess the polishing and production on the, on the singles Like the, the other versions of the song Are the Albini, are an Albini mix of it Maybe not the, Not They're definitely not an, There is an alternate Albini mix from the Super Deluxe Edition yeah. which is yeah. worth exploring as yeah. where he was asked to redo it and mm-hmm. yeah yeah. I just that track I think highlights the inherent inconsistencies in Cobain's kind of conflicted persona you know between pop and punk he was torn and I think it also sort of somewhat soured Albini to the experience a little bit which is a shame because Generally, it seems like he looks back in it very fondly. Mm-hmm. He looks back in the people 
very fondly yeah. as well. Um, I think I like Penny Royalty, and you know? I think the MTV Unplugged version is much better because it, it, you, you feel it, you actually feel the song. I just don't like know? the songwriting. Right. That that fucking high note in the chorus to me is just it's bland songwriting. Just hit a note and fucking nasally straight. I just don't get it. It's it, to me, it's a really it's, it's an outtake or something. Um, the tracks I do love, I'm um, serve the servants. I said I agree with Vicky that the more caustic stuff, Milk It, Radio Friendly Unit Shifter, Sentless Apprentice, are absolutely fucking brilliant. I mean, Radio Friendly Unit Shifter has the best bridge of a song. I mean, if we did an episode on bridges, uh, you know, a theme, uh, that, that would be in it for me. It's absolutely brilliant. fucking mm-hmm. brilliant. Barreling, powerful, emotive, just fucking superb. Uh, Francis Farmer will have his revenge in Seattle, very ape. I think they're great, really direct Nirvana stuff. Similar to Nevermind, I can imagine them in Nevermind, but just they're produced differently here. And all apologies, I, unlike Vicky, I, I do really, really like that. Um, I think gallons of rubbing alcohol flowing through the strip mm-hmm. is really good. She's only been five months late Even though we haven't had sex far away A Nihilistic slacker rock. Mm-hmm. And um, Tourette's, which is going to get a mention shortly... It's a throwaway track and I'm fine with it. Um, I think it's a bit of a sarcastic reference to the likes of Territorial Pistons. Mm-hmm. It's totally okay. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I really, really like that album, but I do think maybe similar to Nevermind. There are just four or five tracks in it that I just don't want to fucking hear. Yeah, I mean, I like the variety of it. I like that it's a bit incomplete feeling. I like that it has the inherent contradictions of Kurt Cobain all over it and it makes it feel more human and approachable. I think one of the things in Nevermind is it, it feels so unapproachable. Mm-hmm. It's so, it is very accessible, but it is overly polished in context. Yeah, and it's up on a pedestal. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah. one feels like a band which is actually trying to try, they're actually trying, they're actually trying something here, mm-hmm. you know, which was totally the MO for the record, right? To try and be obtuse and strange, but also Kurt needed to have a single or two. And he, he obviously went to bat for getting them. Yeah. The, con- the contradiction is like he wanted to be big without seeming like a sellout. Yeah. And that's it. Mm-hmm. And that he was always like that, mm-hmm. you know? Um, Anyway, hang on, before we get to that, uh, where are we at, where are we at, where are we at? This is quickly becoming as unwieldy as endless, nameless. <laughs> is it, is it? Uh, yeah, I think we should pause and go into an unheralded uh, part three next week. It's Mark. unheard of. Aye, uh, because, you know, Frank, we deserve it. Yeah, Nirvana part three coming at you next week. <laughs> Any uh, key Nirvana lyrics you want to throw in at the um, end here before we break? My brain's getting a bit m- mushy. Um, I need an easy friend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, alrighty. 